yeah, the topic is, is revolution possible in the West? And I think this is an important question. Like, anyone who's been at the climate strikes, for example, the last three years would have seen placards, system change, not climate change. If you look around the world, there's more and more popular support in Western countries for socialists or politicians who identify themselves as socialists, Bernie Sanders, AOC, Corbyn. But I think all that is very important and positive, but what it's a sign of is people looking at capitalism, a system run by profit, seemingly by a bunch of maniacs who want to destroy the um, inhabitability of the earth, and they see there needs to be a bigger change than just, like, Labor or Liberal or... Democrat or Republican, something bigger needs to change. But I think beyond that, there's huge questions for people about strategy. What actually can fundamentally change the system? How can you actually get socialism and have a society that's not just set up for the short-term profit of the few at, at the expense of the many, at, at the expense of the environment that creates <coughs> immense inequality and all the rest of it? So I think... Answering that question, we have a revolutionary answer to it. Like, it's not going to be the bulk of the talk. We basically think when you're in a situation where eight billionaires own the same wealth as the bottom half of humanity, they're protected by the military, the police, hierarchical organisations that have a monopoly on armed force, that you're not going to get a fundamentally different society by electing people to parliament because power's not in parliament. Parliament doesn't decide where investment goes, how much unemployment is created, what's produced, who gets it. All those things are decided by private capitalists. And Parliament has a tenuous control even over the institutions of the state that it allegedly controls to, to implement its decisions. For example, Jeremy Corbyn, when he was running for PM in the UK, talked about wanting to abolish the nuclear program and had serving you know, generals in the military being like, nah, we'll revolt if you try to do that. So I think those things indicate if you want to fundamentally uproot capitalism, you need to destroy the institutions that protect it. You need revolution. But that's not the thing I'm going to go over in detail in the talk. But I think if you think you do need a revolutionary strategy, that's not enough. You, people would have the day-to-day experience. Yeah, we need revolution. We need the majority to rise up take out all these institutions but it's like you may struggle getting a couple of people you know to a rally or getting your colleague to actually turn up at the pickets at the strike at Sydney Uni or whatever like in terms of convincing the majority of the working class to rise up how the hell do you do that what's the strategy how is that a realistic prospect that's a big question for people so that's the basic thing I wanted to go over particularly you know, is it possible in the West, in richer countries? So to do that, I wanted to go over a few things. First, to just briefly touch on, you know, Marx's conception of revolution as the self-emancipation of the working class and then look at what Lenin says about the conditions for revolution, consider whether they're likely to arise in rich capitalist countries in the future and then go on to some of the objections that particularly you would get about rich Western countries that the working class actually been bought off by higher living standards or the working class doesn't exist because of the decline of manufacturing. So I'll just start with the thing about Marx. Like Marx wasn't the first socialist ever or the first person to go, wow, capitalism is kind of bad. We can produce more than at any time in human history, but you still got people starving. 
how is that possible? Surely things can be organised better. Like French utopian socialists like Fourier had systemic critiques of capitalism. People like Robert Owen in England had systemic critiques of capitalism. What united those people, though, which Marx dismissed as utopian socialists, was they thought the system would change not based on the actions of a particular class, but on basically a moral commitment from every class in capitalism that this was a bad idea and would all just join hands and, and change it. So their strategy was one of winning people to that moral commitment just through evangelism and talking about how crap capitalism is and how you know, great socialism would be. And Marx had a very different approach to the problems of capitalism. He was materialist. He saw that certain classes benefit from the current setup. Certain classes don't. Certain classes exploit. Certain classes are exploited. And that the working class that was emerging um, when he was writing has a particular interest and a particular power in terms of being able to replace capitalism with something else. And one of the keys he talked about in this is, you know, the way workers are forced by the exploitation of capitalism to combine themselves at the point of production, to struggle against capitalists. This builds organisation, it build, builds confidence, it builds the pedestal you need to stand on to carry out revolution and seize control of the productive assets and put them to the service of the majority. So this made him very, very different to the utopian socialists. He, for example, supported strikes. Followers of Robert Owen were like, strikes, what's that got to do with socialism? It's just about some extra wages. That doesn't change the system. But Marx said, you know, if you want the class that can change the system to build the power to do it, you have to encourage their organisation, their struggle, their consciousness that comes through fighting through to get a bigger slice of the pie under capitalism. That's a precondition for the future revolutionary action. So I just wanted to outline that first, that he had a very particular conception of how to get socialism that differed from others at the time. But what I wanted to go on to now was that, you know, you can see the key role of the working class, but it's obvious, like, revolution isn't possible just by the objective existence of the working class. So it becomes possible in certain conditions, and that's something um, the revolutionary socialist Lenin, who was participated and led the um, 1905 revolution that was defeated in Russia, then the successful 1917 revolution. That was something that he tried to theorise to spread to the rest of the working class of the world, like what conditions actually make working class revolution possible. So he outlined three sort of conditions that are beyond just the will of socialists or the working class for it to happen. So the first thing he said was that Usually you need a situation where the lower classes refuse to be ruled in the old way, but the ruling class cannot rule in the old way. And he talked about how when the ruling class is weak, divided, it doesn't know what to do, the discontent of the oppressed and the exploited can burst up through those cracks, through that fissure. What the hell does that mean? Well, you can see, for example, in Sri Lanka, where there's been massive uprisings against the government, government hasn't been able to solve the economic problems of the country. They don't know what to do. They're manifestly useless in the eyes of the population and have no decisive solution. And that gave people both a reason to rise up but also a feeling that they would succeed because these people have no, no coherent response to the 
devastating, you know, food shortages and everything else. So that sort of situation is necessary. He also says we need a situation where the wanton suffering of the oppressed classes has grown more acute than usual. And that thirdly, you need an increase of actual activity. It's not enough just to get smashed by capitalism. The ruling class is divided if you just lay there and take it. Well, it's not a revolutionary situation. There needs to be mass activity, you know, in, in response to that situation. So, yeah, in other words, in terms of those objective conditions, it's the political economy of capitalism, it's drive to imperialist war, it's self-contradiction that creates periodically, definitely, not if but when cataclysmic crises that make revolution actually possible where you go from struggling to get one person to come to an action to where thousands are like where is the action we're going so that understanding of the way capitalism creates those crises is again different to the utopian socialists where it's just oh evangelism maybe one day if we convince everyone it's like capitalism will convince people that it's unacceptable by what it does to them just to move on from that, I think the other aspect you could note about that is it, it shows that those crises of the system are actually what discredit the idea of being able to reform capitalism to something more humane in the eyes of the working class as well. I just wanted to go on now to whether are those conditions something in the foreseeable future? Is that just, you know, the doomsday sort of prognosis of the far left? So I want to start reading this quote. The quote is, in the early 2030s, the world is in the midst of global catastrophe. Rising ocean temperatures have devastated major fisheries already stressed by years of overfishing. At the same time, changes in precipitation patterns, depressed harvests in key grain-producing areas of the world, driving up food prices, triggering widespread hoarding and disrupting the distribution of food supplies, leading to global famine. A wave of unrest spread across the globe. Protesting governments' inability to meet basic human needs bring down leaders and regimes. In one of many instances in the Western world, thousands of people were killed in three days of violence in Philadelphia, triggered by social media rumours of bread shortages. It's a weird little, like, you know, this could be us in 10 years thing. Where'd it come from? It sounds like something you'd read on, like, an obscure left-wing blog predicting the downfall of capitalism. But it's actually from the US Office of, of the Director of National Intelligence. <laughs> um, global Trends 2040, a more contested world. <laughs> Damn right. But it's not the only scenario they outline, but the fact you have the ruling class, they're like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> it may not be good. The point is those interlocking environmental, economic, military crises that Lenin talks about as creating the conditions of revolution. They're very real. The ruling class can see them. They can think 10, 20 years ahead. Where is this all going to end up? And it's something that, that we need to take very seriously as well in terms of uh, showing that it's the dysfunction of capitalism itself that cr creates the conditions of, of revolution. Like, if you just watch everything that's happening as a passive spectator, it just seems like a horrific series of sad events like one of our members works in a school and said at the branch meeting on Thursday night one of his kids was like in his class was like oh we're going to be the last generation aren't we and was like, oh my god <laughs> but that kid needs Marxist politics to understand <laughs> that capitalism creates its own grave diggers and creates situations where people need 
are compelled in a revolutionary direction, basically. But I think moving on, uh, you can say capitalism, horrific crises, yeah, it would be really bad, but in Western countries, the working class that Marx talks about doesn't actually exist in the same way. It's either objectively doesn't exist because of the decline of manufacturing or it's so irredeemably disorganised that it could never play that that revolutionary role. So, so I want to address both those arguments. Does the working class exist firstly and is it irredeemably disorganised in countries like Australia? So on whether the working class exists, maybe 10 years ago it was quite popular on the left with, you know, radical left writers like Hart and Negri saying the working class isn't really a thing anymore. It's this amorphous multitude that is necessary to rise up against capitalism or... Even now you get, like, right-wing Labour Party people being like, oh, we can't talk about class war like Bill Shorten did because we're in a post-materialist age and, you know, the decline of manufacturing, there's not working class. So I think the common thread in those arguments is a non-Marxist, essentially arbitrary sociological definition of class where it's like, what is class? It's like your accent or if you do manual work or white-collar work or do you go to the opera, or like just arbitrary distinctions um, within society, whereas Marx is, says class is an objective structural position. If you sell your labour to a boss, you're part of the working class. If you're a boss that buys other people labor, people's labour to get rich, you're part of the ruling class. And within those two main classes, there's obviously like a middle layer of like self-employed or whatever, but... Marx is very clear that it is the working class uniquely that is compelled into, you know, decisive conflict with the existing order. You can see it like you might have manual workers who are self-employed. They're not going to join a union because they get the profit they, they produce, whereas someone doing the same job for a huge company will need to join a union to get their share and to organise collectively within that. And by that Marxist definition, the working class is growing, if anything, some analysis of the ABS statistics might say it's 65, 70% of the workforce, but it's the majority of the workforce, the majority of the populations, if you include their dependents, are the working class. So it well and truly exists in Australia today. And you could look at the picket lines we're at at Sydney Uni um, on Wednesday, where, you know, forming pickets, striking for pay, more secure work, all these things, the ruling class recognises those people are working class. They will use the Fair Work Act on them if they strike outside of their set bargaining period against cuts. The, the media recognise them as working class and will Daily Telegraph will talk about, oh, how violent were the pickets <laughs> on Wednesday, the next day on Thursday, they'll have their little article. So... Yeah, if, if the, the ruling class recognises those people working class, we need to as, as well and see the power that can come from that. And you can, you can see that, like, who's leading? There's going to be another revolutionary general strike in Sudan on the 25th. It's led by white-collar unions. Yeah, I think that argument, the working class doesn't exist, is nonsense from a Marxist perspective. <laughs> the question about is it powerful enough anymore... I just want to use an example to illustrate that. So, you know, people say, oh, but union density is so low, blah, blah, blah. Um, workers are getting less share of GDP than at any point in history. It's so sad. We'll never be able to overthrow capitalism. 
but yeah, this I'm just going to use an example to illustrate what's wrong with that sort of defeatist view. So in France in January 1968, one of the best-known Marxist theorists in the country, André Gors, wrote a journal article giving his take on the current situation. He says, in the foreseeable future, there will be no crisis of European capitalism so dramatic as to drive the mass of workers to revolutionary general strikes around insurrections in support of their vital interests. In the same period, The Economist is saying, wow, so much profit in France because the unions are, like, piss weak. This is great. By May of the same year, um, there's the biggest general strike in human history up to that point. People are taking over their workplaces, requisitioning their bosses' trucks, stealing the walkie-talkies, appropriating the walkie-talkies <laughs> from, from the boss's factory to organise the general strike. The president's fled the country to Germany. The Economist has changed its tune and is publishing articles saying, oh, we don't know who's going to pick up the phone at the Bank of France. Like, this shit <laughs> is getting out of hand. Yeah, I think that that example, which I'll talk about a bit more later, was it, it showed what Marx was talking about when he talked about workers' struggle over immediate dem demands being the way they change themselves through their circumstances, the organisation, the confidence, the sense of what's possible that can come from struggles over quite limited things can break out into a potentially, you know, revolutionary situation. So that general strike started because students got in a fight with the cops over protests where the demand for their protests was for male and female students to be able to visit each other's dorms. It's like not um, classic working class demand, but their combat with the police inspires this sympathy general strike and it becomes this huge rebellion. So I think that's an important example because it's a country that's comparable to Australia and it, it shows that it's not always, or it's not absolute poverty that drives revolution it's not growling stomachs it's actually the difference between what people expect and what the system actually gives them that is the key thing so what Lenin talked about in his conditions like the the sharpening of the oppression of the population it doesn't necessarily mean absolute poverty it can mean a cha sudden change in what you get versus what you expect and feel feel entitled to yeah, you can see again the thing about, oh, the working class defeated so weak. Why is the New South Wales government trying to, like, increase the fines for strikes in the public sector? Because the trains are on strike, a bunch of people are late because of that today. The schools, the hospitals and so on are all on strike against them. So, again, it doesn't ring true in history that the most impoverished sort of workers are the most militant. You can even see it from the unions that are known as militant or have a militant history in Australia, the construction union, the maritime union, those aren't the worst paid people by any stretch. They're the most organised, the most militant, the most politically conscious historically. So that sort of sinks that argument. So the last thing um, I wanted to go over was just that, yeah, I think it is 100% certain that conditions for revolution will arise. And that report with the oh my God, we're all, the food scarcity and all that, that intelligence report. That was written before the, the war started in Ukraine, before the massive escalation imperialist tensions that's happening now. So I think that objective situation can arise. The class that can respond to it is there. But the thing I wanted to touch on was that you need socialist and revolutionary organisation within that because 
within those moments, there's always a battle of ideas. Like people who want to keep the system running and defend capitalism will throw all their weight onto the scales at that moment. Unless you have an organised counterweight that's learnt the lessons of history, that's assimilated them into a revolutionary practice that's actually connected to the working class, you can't you know, counter that force that will try and smother the working class in those moments. So um, you need a revolutionary organisation as well as those conditions. And you see that in France 68, like it's this extraordinary uprising no one had expected, but it's sent back to work by the Communist Party who controls the unions and has a decisive foothold in all the unions. And that being able to send the most powerful element of the whole thing back to work leads to the defeat of the struggle and the Conservatives win the next election. But there was a moment where you could see, feel, smell the possibility of if there was a actually revolutionary organisation in all those workplaces, you could turn the tide and, and take the struggle further. And just one final thing to note is, um, I think, different to Marx's Day or Russia 1917, that is the thing we have to deal with now that's a bit different, well-developed, are reformist organisations, well-developed trade unions, which raise their own problems about how you build that day-to-day struggle that um, is a condition of revolution in the future. And it raises the question of the united front being able to work around demands that are agreeable to reformists to build struggle and organisation and convince people of the superiority of revolutionary politics in practice. Like, you can see one of the things we're doing is trying to push for a public sector-wide general strike, for example, all on the same day. It's not enough. All solidarity members, general strike on... uh, (laughs) Set the date. You need to bring everyone else who isn't revolutionary with you to make that sort of advance within the system. You need um, experience in how to do that. And that that sort of dynamic is writ large with the Labor government um, in power as well committed to the warmongering, committed to the environmental destruction, not committed to any serious safeguards for living standards. It poses that question of, yeah, waging a struggle against a system that they aim to manage, but also doing it in a way where you're working alongside people who are reformist and winning them to um, revolutionary politics. Yeah.